Are you or anyone else you know interested in buying or selling a home? How about saving the planet? Climate Change Realty is the only company operating in all 50 states that allows you to create thousands of dollars in donations absolutely for free. Yes, that's right. Our service and your donations are free. Climate Change Realty can connect you with one of the best real estate agents in your city. And because of that connection, a full 25% of your real estate agent's commissions will be donated to a 501c3 nonprofit organization of your choice. Real estate agents earn between 2 to 3% of the final sales price when they help you buy or sell a home. That's at least $500 donated for every $100,000 worth of real estate sold when you find your real estate agent with Climate Change Realty. Visit www.ccrbolder.com today and click Find an Agent to help us transform the real estate market into a battery for the regenerative economy. Welcome to the podcast. Fred, great to meet you, man. Thanks for coming on the podcast. This is going to be a good one. You bet, Ethan. Wonderful to be here with you. No question. Yeah. And we're going to talk about some really cool, interesting stuff. And I'm, I'm absolutely certain I'm going to learn things I've never, never thought of before in this podcast. So I'm excited for that. And we always like to get the episode started with a little bit of background on who you are and how you've got to be doing what you're doing at the current moment. Yeah, so I was um, born and raised in Colorado, actually. I was born in Colorado Springs, and uh, at the age of a year, my parents moved from Colorado Springs to Salida, so I was raised in Salida. I'd say for me growing up, there were basically three seasons of the year, hunting, fishing, and skiing, and I survived the end of one season only because the other season was coming around. And what that belies, I guess, is is just a fascination. Uh, and you wonder where these things come from. I don't know, but an absolute fascination of anything wild and free, whether it was an insect, a fish, a bird, or a mammal, I was absolutely enthralled with it. And so that led, when it came time to uh, go to college and thinking about that, to to uh, going to Colorado State University and majoring in wildlife biology there. <clears throat> and that, for me, couldn't have been a better major, learning, you know, learning about plants and animals and, uh, and ecology, all, all those kind of things was just, just absolutely wonderful for me. Totally unexpectedly, though, um, my senior year in high school, I started working on a ranch. Uh, I had a friend who said, you want to earn some extra money? I said, sure. I was working in a greenhouse full time. He said, look, in the evenings and on weekends, we can haul hay on this ranch. Back in the day, we used to haul it by hand. He said, we can make eight cents a bale, four cents a piece. We'll, quote, get rich doing it, which we didn't, of course. But, <laughs> but anyway, you know, I found and I loved that. I loved being out on that ranch. So throughout my college career at Colorado State, I was also working on a ranch uh west of of salida and then i uh when i finished college i ended up managing that ranch for a couple of years and i, I mentioned those things specifically because they've influenced everything i did since then uh what i learned at colorado state university just opened up worlds within worlds within worlds related to the plant and animal worlds and, and ecology but at that time and in wildlife biology um it was clear that people in wildlife didn't like people in what was called range science. That was the mm -hmm. science that dealt with livestock and with livestock grazing on public lands. And the reason that was the case was that 
you know, it goes back historically to this country when European settlers were moving west and bringing livestock with them. They didn't appreciate how fragile these landscapes are. There's not much water that that falls on these landscapes. So the plant communities that are there can be very easily overgrazed. And a lot of that happened in the early part of the last century. And that had negative influences on wildlife. So wildlife people didn't like range people, didn't like ranching community. And yet I had my feet in both of those camps. And so I was thinking a lot about that as I went along. Um, you know, when you get to know people, uh, not just, not, not, not just it's that are out there, some other group that you don't like, but when you get to know actual people, you come to have empathy for them and, and you come to appreciate who they are, what they're doing. And so I was torn uh, between these two camps and I often thought, well, you know, they're not mutually exclusive and, and we could maybe even use one to benefit the other and vice versa. And that led then when, when on the ranch, I, uh, you know, when I went back and ran the ranch for a couple of years, I knew that wasn't a lifetime thing, but I didn't, I knew I wasn't going to be a wildlife biologist. I don't know why. I just knew that was what I was going to be. And I didn't know what I was going to be. But I, so I thought I'll go back to the ranch. I'll work there for a couple of years and just see what, what emerges. And what emerged was, I think your research would be interesting. Why I thought that, I don't have a clue. I didn't know anything about research. So I started looking around for a place to get into grad school. My grades were okay. They weren't, they weren't off the charts though. Like I say, hunting, fishing, skiing, college wasn't in part. So anyway, I, uh, but I got looking into to a university, Utah State University in Logan. And there was a program there where their whole emphasis had been for decades and decades, how to use domestic livestock to improve landscapes for wildlife. And I thought, you know, that's for me. That's for me. We're going to think about how to use grazing management to make landscapes better for wildlife species. So there you go. And that that's, you know, that's long winded, but that, that gives you some background on me and uh, and how I ended up uh, working at Utah State University as a, as a graduate student in these project programs related to using domestic animals to improve landscapes for wildlife species and then how that led really to to a lifetime career that went in a blink of really i would say studying the behavioral ecology of plants and and animals and their relationship with one another yeah and i appreciate that i, I love getting the background from people and that was that was really well well put i appreciate it one thing i love that you said in the middle is this idea of one party trying to benefit the other specifically when it comes to people who are interested in wildlife uh, restoration or maintenance versus those who are interested in cultivating animals or cultivating food on the land i think that there's no way to create a sustainable system without having one party benefit the other if one party is consistently being beat down that are both have an interest in the uh, the resource of the land there's no way to create a system that's going to consistently work. Eventually, they're going to try find a way to like rise up and attack the other party. So that's why I love this idea of regeneration, where you're always giving back more than you take. And then the idea is the other party is also going to give back more than you take. So you're consistently creating more and more, I could say goodness, but in, in simplicity's sake, when it comes to nature, it's, it's create more and more life. And um, 
there's so much propensity or capacity to support life on this amazing little blue dot that we live on. And um, I don't know, I'm not, I'm in the very clear sense, I'm not a a limited thinker, a limited person. I really believe in excess. And I think there's a lot of discourse around us running out of stuff. But the, the, uh, I can't help but realize that the tools and the systems and the the propensity, I don't know what the word is, is there for us to actually continue to create more and for things to get better. But that's just the way I see it. Fred, I was was wondering if you would mind giving me a brief history about um, grazing animals like cows, sheep, livestock, ruminants, and their relationship with humans, because that seems to have been how we've been able to thrive over these last 10,000 years or however long it's been. Yes, absolutely, Ethan. Well, you know, uh, to make a, a long, intricate story rather short, livestock were domesticated some 10,000 years ago. Um, huge numbers of different breeds have then developed along the lines of goats, sheep, and cattle, all three. And, uh, you know, we've come come to be, in a way, mutually dependent livestock on us and us on livestock in the sense that you were just talking. And so there's... Uh, you know, there's a, there's a relationship that's developed over time with with domestic animals, and uh, you know, I uh, range science that I got involved with there at Utah State University was really about how how to uh, manage grazing by domestic animals, cattle, sheep, and goats in ways that build landscapes up, in the sense that you were saying that that build, you know. W- what are rangelands? Rangelands are, when you look at, at the terrestrial landscape of this little tiny blue dot, they're roughly 50% of the landscape would be what people would call rangelands. So that would be different croplands, you know, where people grow crops of one sort or another, whether that would be plant, plant crops for human consumption, crops for livestock consumption. Those are farmlands and those are different from rangelands. Rangelands would be, uh, you know, for instance, if if you go hiking on Bureau of Land Management administered land or Forest Service land, uh, you're on rangelands, basically. Those are lands inhabited by plant and animal species that are not cultivated. They're they're wild species of grasses, wildflowers, shrubs, trees that occur naturally across those landscapes. Um, They're amazing, actually, amazing kind of, of landscapes rich with diversity of plant species, uh, which you know I often like to say, there's a, there's a very strong emphasis nowadays on soils and the health of soils on farmlands and on rangelands too, for the health of the entire planet, including greenhouse gas emissions and so forth. But I like to make the point always that it's <clears throat> it's plants that turn dirt into soil. And diverse mixtures of plants turn soil into homes, grocery stores, and pharmacies for all of life on Earth, basically, for all these tremendous numbers of species. So, um, you know, that's a little bit of background, not not a, a ton, but about domestication and animals and grazing and then... Um, you know these these areas that we call rangelands and and the importance of rangelands that we we maybe don't think much about them as I look out my window here in Ennis, Montana. What I'm looking at are huge areas of rangeland, basically. Um, the gravelly mountains and, 
and uh, Madison Range and so forth, all that would be considered to be rangeland. Right. And I, I think the idea is that these rangelands can be benefited by having animals on them. And that's because of, I want to say, nutrient cycling would be the main reason why um, animals being on land would increase the health of the plants in the area. Um, the only exception to that being humans who do bad things on the land that specifically have um, just find ways to circumvent natural systems and kind of suck one input out and, and mess up the system. But generally speaking, because of this co-evolution with um, livestock or whatever it may be, or insects, um, these these rangelands or these natural systems have evolved with animals. So they, they kind of rely on these each other in this uh, symbiotic relationship, right? So then where did humans come in to this situation, specifically when it comes to livestock like cows, sheep, and goats? Yes, it's going back to what you were saying. It's an amazing kind of interrelationships that occurs. Um, grazing, you know, plants are plants are the providers, right? Plants provide for all life on Earth, and the challenge for the plant is how to how to stay in the game itself. How how does it keep its own health self healthy, uh, and how does it mediate relationships with all these other creatures in the environment? Well, at the same time, being the source of life for, you know, the source of nourishment for all life on Earth. And so that's the that's an amazing area in and of itself, plants and their behavior, how they how they sustain themselves. And then, of course, the link with livestock, as you're saying, and the uh, the relationship that plants have with 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 animals and and supporting animals on on landscapes. So. Where where does this like demonization of livestock come from if they've been living on these lands for many, 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 many years and they're they're doing this nutrient cycling and increasing the propensity for life in the land? Why are people suddenly opposed to livestock now? Or why you are know, some I, people Yes, yes. I <clears throat> a couple of things come to mind when this topic uh of demonization of livestock comes up. I think, um, as I mentioned earlier, from a wildlife biology standpoint, and, and then that could generalize out, livestock were seen as degraders of landscapes because the, they, they're, well, it was, it was in part a, a misunderstanding. When people moved from the Eastern part of the United States, where there's a lot of moisture, and plants are much more able to tolerate grazing and uh, maybe tolerate not the best in grazing management. Um, when people moved west then, so that they're, they're experiencing that and they're thinking, you know, these animals can graze and graze and graze, not too much harm going on here. When you move west where the arid west, the plants are much more susceptible to grazing. And the kind of systems that had co-evolved, say with larger herbivores like elk and deer and bison, and the animals were moving around those landscapes, um, they weren't so uh, they weren't being overgrazed the way that 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 happened when people came and brought the thousands and thousands of cattle and sheep and goats to these landscapes and and grazed them year-round, season-long. The the plant communities couldn't handle that, so 
it really led to a degradation of these landscapes, which led then to, to disciplines like range science coming into being. But that's one way that we could say that, that this demonization occurred. Nowadays, I see it, and you know, even historically, and if you want, we can get into this a little bit on undergraduate class that I used to teach and so forth, and because it's the same things that are happening now that were happening then. Um, but, you know, there's two things that I think of that get talked about all the time. One is that livestock are, are increasing um, greenhouse, they're contributing to greenhouse gas emissions, so they're bad in that sense. The others, from a human standpoint, that, that red meat in particular, uh, red meat and processed meats are bad for human health. So you have both things that are going on there is that, um, and, and it becomes, <clears throat> I think, very a black and white kind of thing when, if we're honest, we know the world is totally gray. It's all shades of gray. And Absolutely. so, um, you know, are livestock bad for rangelands? Yes, they can be. Are they good for rangelands? Absolutely, they can do amazing things. Are is meat bad for human health? Well, it can be. Is can it be good for human health? Yes, it certainly can. So I live in that gray area, not the black and white. And but then then it becomes everything becomes nuanced. It's not possible to just say, well, livestock are bad. And or to say they're absolutely good, you you come to realize it's the nuance. I love I love Einstein's famous equation. It's not equals mc squared. It's it's ego equals one divided by knowledge. <laughs> and it's absolutely more profound than e equals mc squared. He's absolutely right. The more you learn about something, the more nuance you come to realize. And I. See at my point in the game to where you you ultimately come to to silence, I think, because there's nothing you can say. It's also over your head and also utterly interconnected that you simply realize anything I say is is ignorance. You know, I'm not meaning this in a bad way, but ignorance in some sense because it's just so there's so much there, and that that to me is is said in a in awe and humility and appreciation and. You know, if science did anything for me, it was to open my eyes to these, these worlds within worlds within worlds within worlds and, and to how amazing it is. And so, you know, it's digressing a little bit, but it's um, it, that, that's what strikes me about about all of this this business that we're getting into. So meet meet you know, meet in moderation. And one of the big projects that. I'm a cheerleader on, I, you know, I retired 13 years ago. So I, but I, you know, I had a lot of mentors early in my career that, that were huge for me and I'm kind of paying back now, you know, where you help, help people get funding, help people write papers, help people um, to, to, to do things. And one that I'm involved with is, has a couple of friends that I want to mention by name, Stefan Von Vliet, who was at Duke, who's now at Utah State, and Scott Kronberg, who's ARS, USDA, ARS, and Mandan, our huge interest is in the role of plant diversity. So we're talking now about diverse plant communities, creating healthy soils. How does that influence the health of animals, wild and domestic, both diversity of plant species? And then from the meat standpoint, what does that mean in terms of what I would refer to as the phytochemical and biochemical richness of the meat, 
and how does that does that and how might that contribute to human health huge area and we're you know in in the studies that we're doing we're finding huge differences if animals are eating diverse array of different plant species that all have these um let's get into it just a minute here i know it was on yeah. your question no because you know, yeah we're, so, we're going to talk about nutritional wisdom right after this so, um so so you you can also you know when it comes to plants and we don't want to bog people down in details but so you look at plants and you say what good are they for our health or animal health and you say well there's the macronutrients there which would be energy and protein you know we need more energy than anything else each day to keep us going then protein then you get to the vitamins and the minerals and so forth and they're all vitally important but then there's this whole other class of what ecologists used to call so-called secondary compounds i often just refer to them as phytochemicals and Every plant on the planet produces uh, tens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of these compounds. And originally people didn't have a clue what they were. They thought they're waste products of plant metabolism, feces, plant feces, so to speak, you know? Well, in the last 50 years or more, people, ecologists have come to learn that these compounds mediate every interaction you can imagine in the community. It's amazing, amazing, amazing what they, what roles they play, everything from sunscreen to protect plants, attracting pollinators and seed, seed production. And there's no role that these secondary compounds are, aren't involved in. But then what I'm trying to say beyond that is when, when livestock eat plants that are rich in those, that gets into their meat and fat. And then when we eat that, that gets into our body. So who would care? Who cares about that? Well, turns out, that one of the roles these compounds play is to reduce oxidative stress. They reduce oxidative stress in plants, but they do it in us. And when you eat meat from animals that are eating a diverse array of plant species, inflammation goes down in your body. Uh, people may not realize that anytime we eat a meal, there's an inflammatory response occurs in our body. The degree to which that occurs depends upon the kinds of foods that are in our diet. And to make a generalization, you know, when we're on ultra-processed kinds of foods and diets, as opposed to wholesome plant and animals and fishes and nuts and so forth, we have much higher inflammatory responses. Now, here's what amazes me. There is a lot of literature, uh, epidemiological literature, which I mentioned that specifically because epidemiological studies don't necessarily establish cause and effect in a scientific sense. They're associations, they're correlations. This is correlated with that. And there are many studies that show red meat is correlated with, with um, colon cancer, for instance, and so forth. And, and fair enough on that. But What's lacking are cause and effect kind of studies that really point the finger more directly. And I'm leading up to one study I know that's been done on this tiny blue dot in all the time that human being Homo sapiens have been here. It was done in Australia by researchers in Sydney. And they compared inflammatory response in the body of a human being if when they 
after they ate meat from kangaroos that were foraging over there on rangelands. And you lived in Australia for a year, so you know you can go into a Coles and you can buy kangaroo, right? Indeed, indeed you <laughs> right? can. And they compared that with cattle that were finished on these so-called total mixed rations, high grain rations in feedlots. And there was a huge difference in inflammatory response. When people ate the kangaroo, there's virtually no increase in these inflammatory markers during and after the meal. When they ate the animals from feedlot, very rapid increase in inflammatory markers, and that lasted for several hours following the meal. So, you know, we're quite interested, Stefan and Scott and I, in doing research that, that really, um, follows up on that and looks at how the di how differences in diets animals fed total mixed rations in feedlots versus animals on monocultures versus animals that are eating diverse arrays of plant species and you know we another colleague in new zealand a uh, good friend and colleague pablo gregorini, gregorini has amazing kind of studies showing differences we're all working together on this showing uh, huge differences in terms of uh, metabolites that are produced. Uh, we're getting into these into studies now of people um, that look at at inflammation and so forth. So it, it's it's kind of stunning to me, and I don't mean this as a as sort of a big critique. So, sometimes, so you were talking earlier, and I totally agree with what you said. When you get people with different backgrounds. Again, Einstein, a quote comes to mind when he asked near the end of his life on his deathbed what he believed. He didn't talk about physics, which he'd spend his life. He said, I believe in the brotherhood of mankind and the uniqueness of the individual. Yeah. I often think there's a unity. There's a oneness of all of this. And when we interact with people with totally different backgrounds from what we have, that's where we start to put that oneness back together. No one knows everything about everything. And so in my experience, when you work with people from vastly different backgrounds on whatever it is that you're, you're interested in, you come to much richer kinds of approaches and, and solutions than you do um, when, you're, when you're trying to do everything alone. And that's why I'm so lucky to have this podcast, to be able to talk to whoever I'm interested in speaking to from any other background. But before we go on, Fred, I just really want to applaud your perspective on these things. When you just mentioned Einstein's quote and then talking about diversity and then specifically your mention of this gray area, it's so, so true. It's so immensely valuable. It's the reality of the situation. It's and it's unfortunate because we have to propose narratives to the masses because they don't want to think deeply about every single decision that they're making. They want a simple solution. When I watched um, Doctor, I forget his name, but the, he's the the author of what what the or how to not die, and he was just listing off all the leading causes of death. And he's like, if you eat plants, this you, you'll you'll decrease heart disease, you'll decrease your your likelihood of cancer. And I'm like, oh, a simple solution. All right, so I went vegan the next day. But as you're speaking about this topic, I can't help but think, and then that diversity piece is so interesting that it's it really can. I'm trying. I'm not a scientist, obviously. I'm trying to put all these ideas together in my mind. That at the base, at the end of the day, it really is the value of 
I don't know, but it seems to me that it is the value of the nutrients that you're taking into your body is what is going to increase your health or decrease your cause of death. Now, it could be you know, packaged into a great product. Like if an animal, like for example, a wild caught salmon that spends all its time eating all its foraging, it's eating all these different things, a kangaroo that is out in the wilderness, finding its own source of food, getting all these different varieties of nutrients. It's then compiling that into its cells. And then you're getting that in a, in a pre-packaged thing that has all the nutrients in one place. Cause as we'll discuss, meat is the most nutrient dense food on the planet. There's no doubt really about that. Or maybe you're the one who's foraging and you're going to all these different plants and getting all the different nutrients and you're compiling it yourself. Um, but yeah, I, I can't help but think about how the the soil where these foods is growing, if that is dense in all sorts of different microbacterial, that really could be a, tri- a simple solution of getting as much diversity into the food. So we're, we're going to I just I just want to go real briefly before we get into nutritional wisdom, just to talk about the greenhouse gas stuff, because I do like to address the uh, the climate in the room, as I might call it. Um, yeah. Spe- specifically, like dairy cows, is there a way that they are they can be grown to actually decrease greenhouse gas emissions? And I also wanted to get your thoughts on um, the difference between because there's people talking about. We're growing cows. They're increasing CO2. That's bad. It's causing climate change. But growing animals is different from extracting fossil fuels from the ground. So I wanted to get your thoughts on the difference between emissions from natural processes like livestock versus extractive processes like oil refinery, specifically around uh, dairy cows, which are not just for milk, are for meat as well, as far as increasing, decreasing CO2 levels in the atmosphere or carbon in the atmosphere. Yes, absolutely. It's it's a hugely interesting and important and timely, absolutely timely topic. And there's nuance there as well. I, I'm certainly not not a fossil fuel. I'm not an expert on anything. I guess it after I'm not a fossil fuel expert for sure. But I, I was you know with what's happening with Russia and Ukraine nowadays and oil and and all of that. I've been listening to to different experts talk about that. And one of the things that struck me is talking about oil from Russia and how it's it's much dirtier compared to oil that's extracted here in the US and also the amount of methane that's produced in Russia he was making the point is much greater than, than here piece. in the US so there's nuance right there right we, we but then we can talk about livestock and you know so he was talking about methane and and we know that methane's a really potent greenhouse house gas and when it comes to livestock, people really focus on methane because they do produce wild animals, any ruminant animal, these four-chambered, you know, whether it's a deer or an elk or a bison or all the African animals and so forth, their ruminant animals have these four chambers and one's a huge fermentation vat. And that, you know, the forage goes into that, that they're kind of walking compost heaps, we could say in that sense, you know, and forage goes into that vat. And there are tremendous populations of these um, microorganisms that, that break down that. It's a symbiotic relationship. And there are certain bacteria, certain methanogenic bacteria in there that produce methane. Well, livestock contribute as my latest reading of that, about 4% to greenhouse gas emissions of the total, and about 70% of that is methane. So, mm-hmm. so 
people really focus on livestock related to methane emissions. Um, but your question then is is very good one. So you've got these dairy cattle, and are there ways to reduce methane emissions in dairy cattle? Oh, I have and an answer, by the way. Yeah, a great. Well, one. I do. Yeah. yeah, good. Well, <laughs> um, well, go ahead with your answer. Then I'll well, tell you a little bit. Definitely. So we actually did a podcast with um, a man from. Australia, I think, mentioning Australia several times. He lives in uh, in Vegas now, and he's the CEO of a company called CH4 Global. Are you familiar with the uh, with asparagopsis? Do you know what that is? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you so you already know. So yeah. So he's he's building out this entire system to get asparagopsis into the cattle feed, and it can de- decrease their methane emissions by ninety percent or more with just substituting either 1% or one-tenth of a percent of their feed with this asparagopsis, which I think is going to, is going to change everything with this methane. Yeah. So. so that's, that's a huge, that's right. Those are huge deals. Another way. So, you know, historically, I say historically as, as the dairy industry evolved and as, as livestock feeding evolved, uh, I would say whether it's dairy or beef cattle, and we can get into the nuance of that, but you know, dairy cattle are fed these so-called total mixed rations in confinement. So they spend their entire life in confinement in the barn being fed these total. So what's a total mixed ration? It's a ration that's ground and mixed, and it's typically combinations of things like, like grains of one sort or another, corn, let's say corn, soybeans, um, Corn silage might be in there for for greens and alfalfa, but a key point here, and I'll make it because we'll probably springboard into this, is that they're ground and mixed, and they're 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 formulated for the average animal in the herd, the quote average animal in the herd. So that that's what we're saying when we're talking about a total mixed ration. Um, and there's studies, for instance, I was just looking in preparation for this at some of the recent studies and i found two studies that showed that if if dairy cattle are allowed to forage on high quality pastures that methane emissions go down compared to being fed a total mixed ration in the barn in both of the studies one was in ireland one was was in new hampshire um, but both were showing why is that the case well the higher the the digestibility of the diet and one must realize that if animals are eating green grass, think of really lush green grass, it's very highly digestible. And methane emissions go down when animals are eating really high quality kinds of, of lush grasses. So that's that would explain why. There's more nuance there that that relates to what you the the uh the solution that you yes, yes, that to that approach. Um, and that has to do with the plant species that are in the mixture. And we know, for instance, that plant species that ha- contain these so-called essential oils or terpenes, plant species that contain tannins, plant species that contain nitrates, all those do a similar thing to your spergopsis. You know, they decrease methane emissions. So that's where, again, the nuance comes in. And, and when I think about those those plant species and i think about landscapes that's where kind of getting to know and i'm not saying people should do this but when you get to know the plant native plant and animal species that exist in your in your habitat your community 
you come to then, you know, that's the first thing to get to know them by name. Like I come to know you, Ethan, by name. Then the next step is to get to know something about you, right? You get to know a little bit about me. Well, there's this whole history that every plant has, and that part of that history is tied with its phytochemistry. And so then as you look across a landscape and you say, well, methane can be reduced by plants that contain terpenes or tannins or whatever, then you need to know, well, you know, which plants? Sagebrush has terpenes, mountain mahogany has tannins and so forth. It, it takes you down layers within layers within layers within layers. And it's, it again takes us to the nuance rather than the black and white and <clears throat> categorize and generalize. Then you think each landscape is different, and uh, and and uh, but it, g it gives you something to to definitely to think about, and and then to work on, you know. But <clears throat> it does take us then to this point of our livestock just horrible for greenhouse gas emissions. Well, depending on their diet, they can produce more or less methane, and uh, and that diet <clears throat> includes supplements as you were were mentioning it also includes plants that are in plant communities and uh, some of the colleagues that i mentioned and another one i'm thinking of juan vialba at utah state they're looking at how different mixtures of plant species can be used to uh, increase the health of animals the animals themselves the livestock themselves very important the welfare the health and well-being of those animals matters <clears throat> in and of itself but then that links to the health of the communities including including our health as well and they're looking at how different mixtures of plants literally from conception to consumption influence that let me give you an example it's you know we did a lot of studies early in throughout my career on how experiences starting in the womb from you know from during the last trimester of gestation and early in life, how they influence food selection and habitat selection by animals. It gets you thinking a whole, you know, of linkages of how we get linked across time and space. But so this friend in, in New Zealand did studies where they put mothers, these were sheep in this case, pregnant ewes that were either on a monoculture, so all they had was one plant species, or a diverse mixture of different plant species throughout gestation. Then when their lambs were born, what they did was to look at the, the wool of those lambs and they looked at cortisol, which is a stress hormone. Cortisol is a measure of stress. Mm -hmm. And the, the lambs whose mothers had been on a monoculture had much higher levels of cortisol in their wool at birth compared to the ones that were on a diverse diet. Who would ever think of those kind of things, right? But I mean, it's showing that what animals, the experiences that they're having, <clears throat> even down to the mixtures of foods that they're on, let alone the social and physical environment that they're on, which can take us into feedlots and so forth, all that is influencing, um, influencing them. And then to realize that that's going to influence us. We're, we get linked. If, we're, if, if a person's eating meat, you're you're eating that huh and so mm -hmm. it's it becomes then in a sense too and i think this often and I, I mean it sincerely you know when you get into plants now jumping around on you and plant intelligence and all the senses of plants 20 different senses they can't get up and move around but it's amazing what they do when you get into that and you come to realize they're conscious they're probably sentient in a sense <clears throat> 
And then we think of animals and the same thing. And I think to me, it makes an appreciation that all life is sacred. It's, it's not, it's, it's not a, a, you know, I don't eat animals because, and I appreciate whatever a person wants to eat that that's a person, very personal dis- decision. But I think this idea that, you know, if you're a meat eater, it's bad. If you're a plant eater, it's not good. I know, and you do too, people in both camps, right? The carnivore camp, the, the, yeah. the herbivore camp and so forth we get. And, and, but they're I both think, successful is the crazy yeah, part. That's right. And that lets you know that something about homo sapiens, that, that our ability to utilize a diverse, diverse array of different um, kinds of foods to sustain ourselves is pretty impressive, actually. Any omnivore, that, that's, that's an impressive part, part of things. Huh? But the, yeah. then the, back to this idea that really all life is sacred. And so how do you, how do you think about and treat life with, with, with respect. And I, I say that in the sense of the health of the planet. Um, you know, we are members of nature's communities. What we do to them, ultimately, we do, we do to ourselves. And you can get away with things for a while. But I think ecologically, economically, socially, politically, all those things are catching up with us. And uh, you know, from a hope standpoint, and a, not a hope, just a hope, but w- what we can do standpoint, you know, it's um, it's important that we realize we our fates are all interconnected. It doesn't matter whether you're in Russia or Ukraine or the U.S. or China or wherever it is, and we better get on to Einstein's and believe in the brotherhood of mankind and the uniqueness of the individual idea in a big way, or we'll we'll go down together, you know, and I guess in a sense to infinite digress here, but what the paleontologists tell us, 99.9% of the species that have ever been on this planet are extinct now, and extinction events lead to whole, you know, the end of the age of dinosaurs led to the age of mammals, huh? So, I mean, that's, that's part of a bigger, much bigger picture than what we're maybe focusing on, but, but if Homo sapiens want to stick around, I think this is a make or break time in in our existence that uh, we we better get with this idea of the brotherhood of mankind and the uniqueness of the individual appreciate deep appreciation of that and how do we work together for the betterment of everyone on this this planet and that depends on the day <laughs> i guess what any of us would think about the what's the probability of us being able to do that you know but uh, but we are can we, each, oh, we could do it yeah, that's good. I like to, you know, and that's the that's the attitude that that we have to have. Well, the huh? tools are there. That's the thing. Yes, you, they we are. Just need, we just need to pick them up. That's absolutely that's absolutely the case, and that's this notion too. I think of of love, love, love for one another in the deepest sense. That that's very meaningful in that sense too, right? The tools are there. The challenge is is learning to work together, or learning to work together with one another, huh? Well, it's hard. It's hard to learn how to uh, to work with yourself to begin with, and then I'll just bring it back real quick. It's it's very clear. Um, extracting oil and burning it for energy is different than growing cows. We were specifically that's that's more on the methane side as far as emissions, which also only lasts fifteen to twenty years, versus burning oil releases CO two, which lasts for hundreds of years. So that's to put that to bed because we talk about that enough on the show. I did want to respond and say. 
as far as the cortisol thing, I'm very familiar with this from reading Simon Sinek's Leaders Eat Last. If you told a human, um, hey, man, you're only going to be allowed to eat corn for the rest of your life. I'll tell you what, they're going to get some cortisol shooting off in their brain just thinking of that idea, <laughs> being concerned uh, about that. One of the things I uh, also find very interesting is um, that nature actually gives you solutions to problems. When you talk about, I forget exactly what we were talking about, whether it was emissions or quality of the uh, nutrients that the animal was making, but that when they go and they eat a diverse variety of foods, it decreases. I forget, I forget exactly what it was, but like nature can continually point you in the right direction. It's like, Hey, here's how you want to do it. You want to become better, do this. And then people are like, I'm going to figure it out myself. You know, I want to do my own thing because that's the way we are. I mean, that's like the traditional um, fall in the Bible. God's like, here you go. All you got to do one rule, don't eat the fruit. And the people are like, hmm, I want, what about that fruit though? Like, what if we tried the fruit? You know what I mean? And then that's like, that's what we do. But we, um, we learn from our mistakes. It just, you have to have that long-term oriented lens and continue to fail and learn, but you really need to accept, um, your, your lessons when you have those mistakes. Um, at least I think so. Yeah. Let's, let's keep going into this idea. I I agree totally. We're, we're forever students. If we keep a child, childlike awe and humility, and and sort of a sense that that we we don't know if we can keep that in our thought always we don't know and always open to learning that that's um you you can't can't lose on that one you can't lose no way you can go through the pain and struggle of growth though uh but you got to learn to love that process you know right absolutely absolutely the case absolutely the case yeah. So let's let's dive into this idea of nutritional wisdom. I'm not sure if you came up with this or these three legs of the wisdom stool. Where does that come from? Or yes, the, that yes. comes from our, our research over the last 45 years, 50 years or so, Ethan. And, uh, you know, to give some background, you were asking about domestic animals and, and domestication and those processes. And it links in with this idea of nutritional wisdom. So when we started our research many years ago, um, trying to think how far back to to go. So let let me tell you a story. So I was on this project as a master's student, as a graduate student, where we were using goats down in Southern Utah, down in the St. George area, a little town called Gunlock. We were in the backwoods there working with a shrub called blackbrush. And the idea was that if we browsed that shrub during the winter time, if we used goats to browse it, that would stimulate new growth, new twig growth during the springtime. And we knew that these new trees were higher in energy, they were higher in protein, they were higher in minerals than the old woody growth. So that was the idea behind the project. Well, um, two things happened that really launched me on this whole idea of of nutritional wisdom of animals. One was that the new twigs that we thought the animals would just absolutely love, most of the animals didn't want to eat those new twigs. So it's like, whoa, what's going on? We know it's more nutritious. Why won't they eat it? That was one thing. The other thing was we had my wife and I in 110 degree temperatures down there during the summer of 1976, we built two miles of fence to set up six pastures down there. 
and then we put 15 goats in each pasture during during that next winter. Um, one of the goats on one of the pastures started to eat wood rat houses. Wood rats are these little rat-like creatures that live down there in the desert. And at the base of these juniper trees, they build their houses. They build these big elaborate houses. And uh, so why, you know, blackbrush doesn't look like a great forage at all, but wood rat houses look even worse. Why would you eat a, a wood rat house? Why would you start eating a wood rat house? Well, you know, I'm watching the goats and I'm looking at what they're doing and I realize there's different rooms inside those houses. One of the rooms is the bathroom and that's the room they're focused on. They're wanting to eat the bathroom. So, but what they're doing actually, that bathroom is is vegetation, you know, needles and and little twigs and and leaves and stuff that are soaked in urine that urine becomes a non-protein source of nitrogen. It becomes a, 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 a sort, let's just say a protein source for those animals. Well, that's a huge benefit to them the, to do that. And so when I went back to Utah State University and I started telling these, these professors in toxicology and nutrition what I was observing, they looked at me and they said, you know, I guess that just goes to prove that domestic animals don't have nutritional wisdom. They've lost nutritional wisdom. As a result of 10,000 years of domestication, they no longer have it. And, you know, I didn't know what to say at the time, but I didn't believe it. It's like, you know, there's something going on. These animals know something that we don't know. And that led then to studies to, to realizing that the wood rat houses were was a nitrogen boost for those animals. Only only animals in one pasture ever figured that out though. That was amazing to me. I guess speaking of Einstein, the Einstein of the goat world was in that pasture, figures it out. And they're so social, everybody else starts to do that. But when we weighed them at the end of the 90 days, the three months they were down there, those animals had lost far less weight than the animals on the other pastures. So that was significant for them. And it was simply a nutritional wisdom being manifest. Um, the other thing, why didn't the goats want to eat the new twigs? Well, come to find out through a lot of study, those twigs, what the plants are doing down there in those resource poor environments, no water, no, no, hardly any nutrients and so forth. When they produce new twigs, they protect those twigs. And the way they protect those is chemically. And they, the bark of those twigs is over 70% tannins. And those tannins are feeding deterrents. When they're in very, very high concentrations, the animals can't utilize much of it. Does that make sense? You know, it's, it's simply a way that the plant says, leave me alone, man, <laughs> back off. I don't want you. And the goats got the message. And so, that launched us then, those observations launched us on a lifetime of trying to study what, what is nutritional wisdom. And there are, to make a very long story short, there are three legs to the stool. One we've been talking about over and over again, the availability of diverse arrays of alternative forages. If that's what gives animals choice and ability to choose. If you restrict them, the more you restrict them, you put them in a box. It's like you're saying, imagine that somebody tells you, well, Ethan, here's your diet for the next 90 days. You got corn, all the corn you want to eat, man, go for it. We'll give you whole corn. We'll grind the corn, whatever way you want it. Corn, that's, 
It's not going to work for you. It won't be any time till you're going to say, I am sick and tired of it. And we showed that over and over again with domestic animals. They, they told us we're sick and tired of this. We want choice. So choice and ability to choose enables animals not only to meet their needs for nutrients, but also to self-medicate both therapeutically if they get sick, but also prophylactically, preventatively, just by eating a diverse array. Be like us saying, you know, eat a diverse array of fruits and produces. And if you can grow them yourself, because you're going to be doing what Hippocrates says, you're going to be let food be your medicine. That literally is true. That literally is, is true. So this, that's one leg to the stool, this diversity of different, different plant species. A second leg, and this 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 was totally stunning to me. I, I never in my lifetime had a clue of of this, but it's what what we refer to as feedback, and it's these metabolically mediated relationships between cells and organ systems in the body, including the microbiome and the palate. If you think about why we eat, what is it that we're feeding? Where does food go? Ultimately, it goes to cells, right? It's delivered via capillaries. And the, cap, uh, the cell can only forage, if we use that analogy, it can only forage on what's in those capillaries. And feedback is the way through neurotransmitters, peptides, hormones, and so forth. It's the way that cells tell the palate what they want. So when we eat a particular food and if i were to ask you ethan why do you like a particular food you tell me i like it because it tastes good and that's true if i like why don't you like a particular food it tastes bad to me you know and we all vary in what tastes good and bad to us but what we don't realize is that liking for flavor is being mediated by feedback from cells and organ systems and it's not a conscious thing any more than than if i ask you well Ethan, which enzymes are you releasing right now to digest the food you just ate or you ate last night? Or you guys, so what the hell are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense. I'm not thinking about that. Neither do we sit and think about these feedbacks. It happens automatically. It occurs even within a meal. I often think, you know, my wife and I eat big mixes of, of fruits and vegetables. We love them. We, we eat meat as well. But I love to begin a meal with 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 a salad. And there's one that she makes that just I never tire of it. And I think in my body, it's really a match. It's these little mandarin oranges with a variety of different uh, different uh, spinach and lettuce and so forth. Usually pick green when our things greenhouse is going and then put some some pecans in there and some some. Uh, some cran raisin sorts of things and that makes for me is just my body loves that but when i eat it at the beginning of a meal I, my liking for it is much greater than at the very end of the meal well my body is satiated on on the nutrients that are in that so feedback is ongoing we don't think about it we don't need to think about it and in fact when we get into trouble is when we start thinking too much about it. And when the culture is telling us, well, you should eat this, you should not eat that. Well, maybe your body doesn't, that doesn't work for your body. Each one of us is so different. We can be identified by our fingerprint. A bloodhound can track us by our odors. When we look inside at our bodies, how they're formed and how they function, we're each absolutely unique. So what works for your body 
may or may not work for my body and so forth and so on. There's a, a guy, Roger Williams, he's dead now, wrote a book years ago, I think in the 50s, the first edition, Biochemical Individuality. It's a fabulous book, just making the point how different we are and how different our diets are as a, re, as a result of that. But that all of that then relates to this notion of a second leg of the stool, these feed, metabolically mediated feedbacks that are changing our liking for the flavor of food as a function of need. And this, again, is happening at a non-conscious, non-cognitive kind of level. The third leg to the stool is, is the social, uh, cultural part that that begins in utero and early in life and these transgenerational linkages that come down you know mother i really think of as a link mother links us with with our ancestors and with the landscapes that we inhabit and that starts in the womb and we did lots of studies to show that experiences in utero influence liking or the flavors of foods that are you know <clears throat> The flavors of foods that mom's eating get into the amniotic fluid. So the young, the young fetus during the last trimester of gestation is experiencing, it's starting to learn about mom's diet and genes, this whole field of epigenetics. Genes are being switched on as a function of what foods are in mom's diet. And if they're wholesome foods, you have one kind of an epigenome that's being manifest. If they're not, you can have different kind of epigenome being manifest. So these experiences in utero and early in life then become fundamentally important in influencing form, function, and behavior of the offspring. So those, those three legs of the stool become fundamental to nutritional wisdom. If you break any one of those legs, you're not going to have nutritional wisdom manifest. If you break all three legs of the stool, as we've done in humans and mm -hmm. in the animals in our care, including including our pets. I, I did a podcast, the lady Karen Becker, where we talked about the value of wholesome foods for, for pets, for cats and dogs, not, not giving them, quote, the ultra-processed foods with no choice, but giving them choice of different wholesome kinds of foods Dogs, for instance, they're omnivorous as can be, and I'm digressing here, but it's, you know, but realizing that this wisdom and choice and ability to choose relates not only to us, but to the animals in, in our care as well, not only livestock, but, but our pets. Uh, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing. And if we, uh, Roger Williams in the book, Biochemical Individuality made the point, and I'm using him as an authority to make this point, even though I've studied it for 50 years. I'm gonna he said, if this wisdom were known and appreciated, there would be no need for nutritionists because we would, the body is the first nutritionist, it's the first pharmacist, it's the first medical doctor. And I'm, I'm not saying that to discount those fields because I very much appreciate and have good friends across all of those fields of endeavor. And we've learned a tremendous amount. But what I'm trying to do is, say, is to make the point explicitly that there is a wisdom that's in our bodies and we haven't lost that wisdom either that can guide us as no one else can because you're unique. You're unique in all of time and space. Each one of us, there's never been one like us on the planet, never will be uh, after that. There is this wisdom. And so how do we turn into that wisdom, both physically and I would say spiritually uh, as well? But that's a whole other conversation. But this, mm -hmm. 
there, there, there is a wisdom and to come to trust in that wisdom and to trust. We were talking as we came on, what, what wonderful work that you're doing for climate and in real estate, which you wouldn't necessarily see as conjoined to one another and so forth, and that you love and the podcast and that you loving that. Well, I would say there's a wisdom in each one of us that, that guides us, a guidance system that, that we, when we follow our heart, when we follow our gut, as Joseph Campbell used to say, follow your bliss. When you get on that path, it's, it's, it's something that's in you that simply knows. How it knows, you can't explain that. It just it knows that this is what I need to do. This is what I am. And uh, follow that and never let it go. And so I'm, I'm saying that for nutritional wisdom as well. But you have to have wholesome foods. You have to, <clears throat> you have to not eat, <laughs> you know, the, the, the ultra-processed foods and the food industry has created just absolutely ir irresistible kinds of, of, of foods. I was at an occasion here recently for several days, and I won't get into any specifics, but you know, we, we had brought a bunch of really, really wholesome foods and then some other people had brought some really ultra processed to, to me, which was, you know, re really not, not good food. And it's amazing to see how much the people go for the ultra processed kind of, of foods. They're just the, they're short term they're, gratification. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's that. And, you know, if you're going to Look at short term versus long term. You always go for the short term. Oh, that's what, what we do. But then the, the downside is the long term negative obesity, diabetes, diet related diseases. You're right. Those short term gratification is is it. And that, I was watching that day after day and in some of the breakfasts and stuff. And what, given the choices, what people were going for, that that brings me to another story here just quickly. Clara Davis, uh, nearly 100 years ago, did, did studies with orphans <clears throat> and uh, ran those studies for six years, 15 orphans, giving them choices of, of different foods and showed that, that they would select uh, foods that met their needs. No two individuals selected the same food. No individuals selected the same food day to day, but they all uh, selected diets that over that six years led to, to very healthy children. The, the pediatrician said he'd never seen, seen healthier kids in, in, in his life than, than those particular kids. But Clara was going to run a study where she introduced processed foods into their diets. That was back in the early days of that. She didn't do it, the depression hit and everything else. But I, I laugh thinking of that. We've run that experiment, huh? And I was watching that experiment play out in this, this situation. The ultra processed foods are, are very hard to resist. Person has to, has to uh, absolutely avoid those. Don't, don't even put them in your grocery cart, huh? Put wholesome foods and stick with that. Well, that's mind blowing because you walk into the store and all the colors and the boxes and the shapes are there. They're like, come buy me, come buy me. I'm going to taste good. You've had Doritos before. You know what they're like. It's a big red bag with a flame on it. Don't you want to grab it? You know? And your background is in business, Ethan. And, yeah. you know, I can say from the work that I did over the years, and, you know, I attended and participated in many, many uh, fabulous symposia and workshops with people from the food industry. I mean, in those days, everything from insects to rats to livestock to humans, we, we were all getting together. And, to, and the principles are the same. 
But I can tell you, to me, some of the most fascinating talks were from the people in human nutrition. And we were all talking the same principles and processes. It didn't matter whether it was an insect or a livestock or a human. It's the same principles and processes. But boy, the way they were using those, I used to think, man, that's where the money is. Those guys are really where the <laughs> Nobody cares about a goat or a sheep or a cow. Mm -hmm. That's where the money is. And I can tell you, based on what you just said, nothing is left to chance. Absolutely nothing is left to chance in terms of how those things are packaged, where they occur on the shelves, um, the ingredients that go into making those. It's... Uh, yeah, it's very, very hard to resist. Huh? So we have two things that have happened then. <clears throat> At the same time, processed foods were becoming irresistible. Wholesome foods were becoming less and less flavorful because we had the accent on yield as opposed to phytochemical and biochemical richness. We were growing crops for yields. We were selecting against all these phytochemicals that add to richness of flavor and so forth. And so... We really shot ourselves, we set ourselves up for, for what's happened nowadays with that combination of things occurring. Yeah. Well, my mission with my whole business is to really get the money into the right place. And I'm starting with real estate because I understand that it's simple and I know what I'm doing will work. And then from there, it's really about empowering the consumers. It's like, do you want to use a normal real estate agent who's going to donate none of their money? Or do you want to use one of my agents who's going to donate half of their money, half to me and half to a nonprofit. It's just like an, it's about giving people obvious choices that are better and it will win out over the long term. Business is not about quarters. It's about centuries. If anything, you look at the most successful companies, so many of them go out of business, but there are some that hang in there yeah. and continue to innovate and become better. I mean, Apple is going on what more than 40 years of being probably the most innovative company that's ever existed. And one thing I wanted to say about nutritional wisdom is like, when you drink a giant milkshake and you feel like shit afterwards, I mean, it's a pretty obvious sign from your body. It's telling you what's up. It's just that that short term gratification right beforehand that you have to beat and you'll get that symbol afterwards. But it's um, it's too late. Let's talk. Yeah, by the that, way, ab absolutely. You know, <clears throat> I think so many things from what you just said. I, I remember reading Peter Singh, Peter Singh's book, The Fifth Discipline, The Art and Practice of the Learning Organization. And boy, was it about what you were just talking about, how, you know, how, how, how long do Fortune 500 companies last? Most of them about half of our lifetime, but the ones that endure consistently innovate, innovate, innovate. Uh, and that's a lesson for us in all of this. The other thing that you mentioned, too, is, is your business and, and how nice that is what you're doing in terms of where, where the money goes, where, where some of the profit goes. And I think in, in the broadest sense of the conversation that we're having today, if one realizes then that climate is linked with the health of soil, plant diversity, the animals that are on those landscapes and humans, then you have this, this really holistic kind of view. And it, that was and the then, idea. Yeah, and then what, what we do, huh? what, what we vote with our dollars and we, we vote our health with those dollars too. And that's, it's that it's very good. It's about it's really about empowering the consumer. My model is giving people an obvious better choice. And you know what? They don't have to take it. I'm not creating a mandate where every single realtor has to donate half of their money. I'm creating an opportunity for a realtor who wants more business to get it and a consumer who wants to help to plan it to do it for essentially for free. If you're going to sell your house 
it's just it's not it's not taking away anything. It's only increasing the experience. I, I just I'm I'm all I'm all in on it. And I want to yeah, tell it's you for a fabulous deal. Yeah, I want to tell you, Fred, as a, I've been thinking about this nutrition stuff, I first started when I was in college. But in the last couple of years, I've really been delving into this because I'm I'm not dogmatic. I'm very much like you. I, I play in the gray area and I, I eat the plant based diet, but I understand the nutrient density of meat. And I have been listening to carnivore speakers. I'm a big fan of the Joe Rogan podcast. He brings that up a lot. I listened to the most recent episode with the people from the sacred cow. And it's very obvious to me that it's not, it's never a simple black and white response. But as we're having this conversation, I don't want, I mean, I'm going to shout out my arrogant thoughts. I feel like I'm coming to like the actual answer of like what it means to, to have a healthy diet. And it seems to me to just eat a bunch of different sources of food because you, what you want to get is our next topic is like, what are the building blocks of a healthy diet? It's these macronutrients, micronutrients, vitamins, and minerals. So I wanted to see if you could kind of talk to that and then how we've kind of put emphasis in this country more on calories rather than these specific nutrients, which is actually what makes us healthy, you know? Yes, absolutely. It's a critical, critical point. And I think I'll, I'll stay stepped back just a bit on that in this sense that, uh, so I mentioned earlier that I'm working with, with, with several people and we've written several review papers on, on this topic of, you know, how diversity of diet of, of livestock influences the phytochemical and biochemical richness of meat and dairy. And a point that we've made is to stay really in that middle ground that you're talking about. Look, there, there are nutrients, um, minerals, vitamins, and so forth, that plants can, can provide in abundance. And these phytochemicals that they can provide in abundance, that meat doesn't provide so much in abundance, right? But then there's also nutrients in meat, the essential amino, amino acids, uh, vitamin B12, the B vitamins, um, and so forth and so on, that meat can iron, that meat can provide in abundance, and you don't have to eat a, a massive amount of it. You can eat in moderation, and that meat can really provide you as well. And so this mixing and matching, but then I think a key, and it takes us back to nutritional wisdom, is it, that's right, exposing your body to a variety of those. And you know, if you're going to eat meat, Think about where you get that meat. Buy that meat from somebody that's really conscious and doing what we're talking about. There are many producers nowadays that are totally on board with everything we're talking about and trying their darndest to really raise, uh, to, to, to encourage plant diversity, healthy soils, healthy animals, and then healthy product for us. So thinking about that, but I think exposing your body to a variety of different things, trying to trying to let go, you know, it, we're so powerfully influenced by what, what we hear. I love to give examples of that where um, the placebo and nocebo kind of influences. And we're all su subject to this. So I'm not saying I'm any different, but when you get into some of that literature, it's just amazing. If you take the same piece of meat, for instance, since we're talking about meat, tell people it came from this really holistic, organic kind of place. Um, 
and then ask them how it tastes. They say, oh, it tastes wonderful. I love the flavor and so forth and so on. Tell them it came from some factory farm. That's they say, oh, it tastes greasy, salty. I can't. It's the same piece of meat. So the point I'm trying to make is, is trying to tune into the wisdom of your own body. Offer get allowing yourself to select from a variety of, of different things that go across that spectrum and then let your body tell you not an easy thing nowadays because we are so influenced by what we we hear for instance where we started out should you eat meat well there's a cap that says you know meat is bad for human health it's bad for environmental health and if you're hearing that over and over and over again it's going to influence your body's response physiologically to to the meat that you eat, you know, is the point I'm trying to make. So it's not so easy, I don't think, to just try to sort to let all of that go and tune into the wisdom of your own body and then do that in ways that that respect the sacredness of all life, which means doing your homework, where the plants coming from that you eat, where the animals coming from that you eat, and so forth. So as we say, it's never I guess it's never serious, it's, it's never simple. But if you want to take it seriously, then there's there's an obligation there. I, I often say, too, one of the best things, and I, I was reading this, I think it was on EPA website. They say, what are the 10 best things you can do for climate, if you want to do for climate? One, avoid food waste was number one on the list. Number two, get rid of your lawn. I've been saying that for years and years oh, yeah. and years. And when you look at the amount of resource that we put in, especially in the arid west, into fertilizing, pesticides to get rid of dandelions and clover, which clover is actually a natural way to fertilize your lawn and keep it green. And, uh, and then the water that we put on, we put a tremendous amount of resource into our lawn. So one way to think about that is to make a tiny little lawn, but then let native plants grow all around your place. Come to learn all these native plants which increases the diversity of your place, and then grow vegetable, herbal, medicinal gardens. Grow them yourself and see how absolutely delicious the carrots taste and the tomatoes taste and the peas taste compared to, you know, we can't, in, in, us, in, in the heart of the winter, we can't grow stuff. We're going to plant some stuff now in a greenhouse that we have, but it's so cold, we, we just, we, we can't do that here. But I notice that, you know, when we have to start buying carrots that taste like sticks, tomatoes that taste like, I don't know, there's no flavor. And when you grow that stuff yourself, you have this richness of flavor. And what does that do? Tiny lawn, let the dandelions be there, let the clover get in there, look at diversity, and then start to look at how many bees come to visit your place. Our place in the, in the spring and summer is just humming with all these getting the clover that's in our little lawn all the native plants that are growing there we've planted probably a hundred different uh shrubs native berry producing shrubs around the place life comes and you move away from the quote corn which would be kentucky bluegrass huh? the monoculture of kentucky bluegrass and a few few plants that you plant but that that's that requires actually, and I'm not being the critic or anything. Just trying to encourage. That encourages a transformation of consciousness of what you see as beautiful. And uh, you know, if you come to see, for instance, here in in our place, all the different 
the grass species from western wheatgrass to blue grama to blue bunch wheatgrass to the forbs, the wildflowers like <clears throat> local weed and larkspur and blazing star and on and on and on in the shrubs. If you come to appreciate the beauty that's in those, um, then you, each season you see these different ones, some that come in the spring, some that come in the summer, some that come in the fall, and they become your friends in a way. But also they become your friends because you don't have to put water on them, you don't have to fertilize them, you don't have to put pesticides, herbicides. That's what nature grows here naturally. huh? So that's uh, that's another way to think about our relationship with the environments that we live in and the foodscapes that we live in and then how to create health and how to link ourselves back with those those scapes in really in ways that ground and center us i think we we have some chickens here at the place and uh, we keep them in a palace that we built for them actually and but we'll turn them out in the spring and summer and fall and let them forage. And we have people who have no experience of any of this who will sometimes with us. And they go out and they say, it's so calming to be around these chickens, you know. And they don't. <laughs> but little it, dinosaurs. It, it, little, di absolutely, little dinosaurs doing their own thing. And there's two ducks with them. And, and these two ducks are tuned into the sky in the way that no no creature, it's amazing. It, the, the slightest thing up there, a jet, a teeny jet, or any kind of a potential bird predator, their heads tilt, the chickens look at the ducks, we look up and so, but what's amazing to me is the people are from cities, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, it's where, you know, wherever you're born, but what I'm saying is that they come out and they say, it's so calming to be around these birds. To me, that relates to something that must be deep inside of, deep inside of, you know, from our from our ancestors, we were all indigenous way back, right? We were all indigenous peoples. It's just how long ago we lost our indigenousness and our linkages with those landscapes. And um, these are ways to link oneself back in ways that help the climate, uh, reduce use of resources, water nowadays, and the, the, the drought the extended drought here in the in the West and what's happening with lakes like Powell and, and Mead. And it's, it's, it's hitting home being very, very serious. We're gonna have to change our ways of, we're gonna have to think like, like native plants think about, about water and use of water Definitely. in the future. We're not gonna be able to have Las Vegas as where we have lot golf courses. You know, uh, that's mm -hmm. that we got away with that for a while, but that's looks like to me coming to an end here in the not too distant future. Well, things are always changing. That's a that's one that's thing it. that you can be sure of in life. And like yeah. you said, for the businesses that survive, what what's what what's they're the good value? at changing. That's the, the key yeah. factor in successful businesses over the long term is they're good at change. I and took to a whole class that, on that in Australia. That's right. And to see that not as a problem, but to see that as a challenge and an opportunity, huh? To continually innovate, to continually innovate, to stay in the game. That's and to to let go of the past, which is, you know, how do creatures of habit survive in a in a world whose only habit is change, huh? That's what right. you've got to do. Well, you've I'll, I'll tell you, I've had some amazing ideas throughout this conversation that we can we can discuss at a later time. I'm thinking about a giant 
land where like animals are able to roam free and people like hunt them and that's how we get our meat and then we also let the wildlands grow free and plants grow naturally there maybe with a little bit of human interference but that's just some idea i'm having throughout this conversation it's been really it's been it's been awesome man it's been great having you um i did want to ask before we we sign off based on your like study of rangelands over the years do you believe life forms the ones that have the most success are able to propagate their species and continue to grow and thrive are more about beating out their competitors who are competing for the resources or more about collaborating with other life forms that are symbiotic with them when it comes to yes, success? Yes, that's, a, that's really a great question, Ethan, and a great way to end this. I would say, you know, throughout my career, um, ecologists have focused so much on competition, 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 kind of, a, and I often think, Maybe that came from the capitalistic society we grew up in and this idea of, you know, competition and also and all misguided. That. It's yes. not just about that. Yes. And so there was always this accent on on competition, competition, competition. I see that changing now to an appreciation of synergies, the synergies that that plants create with one another, with others in the community. And uh, to me, it's it's about synergies and you know, when you look at plant communities, they're not, they're typically not monocultures. They're not just one thing that dominates the environment. They're mixes of a whole bunch of different, different species. And, uh, and that's where the synergies, that's where the synergies come below ground. Um, you know what these, these different plant species with, as we were mentioning, the different phytochemistries, which encourage diverse arrays of, of life below ground, of, of microorganisms below ground, which enable life above ground. It's about, it's about the brotherhood of, of mankind and the uniqueness of the individual, the synergies that come out of that brotherhood. Huh? And I think that's, that's, that's absolutely the case. It, it takes me back to when I was a young undergraduate and Ecology was a very young discipline, 50-some years or, or more ago, and people used to talk about the importance of diversity. Even then, they, they recognized diversity is absolutely essential, and uh, I heard the words then, I appreciated it, but after a lifetime of working on this stuff, it, it's absolutely uh, foundational. It's foundational in... in uh, plant and animal communities and in human communities as as well huh to recognize that in in working together in in wholesome ways that build one another up forget the categorizing and generalizing and and putting people down that that's that's where the action is huh? the synergies the synergies well if you know what's very interesting if you want to take it to an existential level like i do i don't know if that's the right word but um, if we're not collaborating with living beings, we're actually collaborating with deceased beings by burning fossil fuels, by building homes out of wood, by using this desk, which is built out of wood. There, there's no end to that. You can't stop the collaboration. You can't exist as humans in a vacuum. We are using... I guess glass is like is sand. So sand wasn't alive. So that's one thing. But we are constantly, if we're not collaborating with something that's alive, we're using the things that are dead to succeed. So that's just something I thought of throughout that that little question. Isn't that? Yeah, yeah. absolutely the case. Uh, we're linked. We're linked in time and space. 
ultimately one thing, I think, one thing, huh? All yeah. evolving, merging in time, what we call time space. Yeah. Fred, any final pieces of advice for young folks who are passionate about building a better world? You know, I would say do what you did, Ethan. And I guess what I did too, uh, follow your bliss, Get find, follow your heart, figure out what it is that moves you and follow that. And you, you can't go wrong. Huh? You can't go wrong. And it, it will be appropriate, I think, for the time and day, the time and age, huh? As, the challenges that are here nowadays. I think that that's the one thing I would say is follow, follow, follow that and fearlessly. Couldn't agree more. Dr. Fred Provenza, this has been a, a fantastic conversation. You've stoked my imagination in so many different ways. I can't wait to continue um, like delving into these topics because like you said, it's very contemporary. It's very now the, the solutions exist. We just need to implement them and we need to collaborate in order to do that. So I'm, I'm all for it. It's been so great having you on the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, wonderful to be with you, Ethan, for certain. Yeah, no worries at all. All right, everybody. We'll see you soon. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrboulder.com today.